Welcome to Serious Coin, the podcast where we have rich conversations about wealth. I'm your host, Kelly Willis-Green. Today I'm speaking with someone who is one of my role models for living with wealth, an entrepreneur, philanthropist, and a very dear friend, Greg Clark. In 1971, at age 17, Greg started a summer painting business. The company was College Pro Painters, and over the next 20 years, Greg built it into a major franchise operation. He had 600 franchises with 5,000 painters when he sold the business at age 37. Following the sale, Greg searched for new purpose, first as a venture capitalist, before finding his true north as a venture philanthropist. Today, he is chair of Trails Youth Initiatives, a charity dedicated to empowering at-risk youth, and he says it's the most rewarding work he's done in his life. Greg and I talked about everything from the emotional struggles he faced after the sale to the mistaken ideas he had about VC investing to how he defines wealth today. I started by asking him about the phone call that led to the sale of College Pro. I, I did get a call and it was, um, uh, it, which, you know, it triggered me. I hadn't, hadn't thought about it too much, but it triggered me to think, well, what, you know, I'm 30, 37 years old. I've been doing this for 20 years. Where do I go from here? Is this just going to be the, the rest of my life? And I thought, right. So it was one of those occasions where you just pause and pull back and think. And um, I guess I realized that that uh, we had grown College Pro across lots of locations across North America, you know, 600 locations. So if I expanded to California, it wasn't going to be all that much different from expanding to Chicago or expanding to, to BC. It would just be sort of more of the same. So that was consideration number one. Consideration number two was I, by that time I'm 37, but the college pro managers always stay 17, 18, 19. So I'm getting more and more distance from them. And when I'm going to manager weekends in the summer, which was our big social event, I would go to the ones all around North America, especially if I'm taking my wife and a few kids. It's getting I'm getting even more different from the from my from my from my, not my audience, but my I guess my primary customers because I managers and my franchisees were my main customers and their customers were the clients. So it just, it, it, it felt like it was the right time to make a change. But this had been your baby. I mean, you, you spent years building it up and now it was in the hands of somebody else that had to have been a difficult transition. Absolutely. Absolutely. It, it, it was most of my, certainly my adult life from 17 to 27 had been my main P for purpose and uh, everything been focused around it. So you go from like 100 miles an hour down to zero overnight. It was it was it was pretty hard. I tried to prepare for it a little bit. You know, I asked some other people who had sold, and I a little bit of therapy and that kind of stuff. But I was not ready. Well, for what? What what was the toughest part? The toughest part for me was going from all entrepreneurs go 24 seven to going to zero, and I literally woke up the next morning had nothing to do <laughs> and that was a, a you know it's a you're 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 i had gotten advice you know to, you know and it's like but they say when you retire you should you know plan what your hobbies are and that kind of stuff and i guess i, I i'm usually good at listening to those kind of consultants and taking advice but i was just so focused on making the sale it was the first time you had to go through all those closing documents and all that kind of stuff and i was and i, I agonized over whether it was the right thing to do or not i just wanted to get across the finish line then i got across the finish line i went ah now what? Like a lot of entrepreneurs who sell their business, Greg was faced with the question of what to do next with both his time and his windfall. And while many entrepreneurs jump right back into business, Greg took a time out. 
He went off with his wife and young family to the south of France, where they lived for a year while he contemplated his future. Well, I had to get away from Canada because everybody that you met was going, oh, that's great. You've got all this money now. And the next question would be, what are you going to do next? I'm sure it'll be fantastic. I mean, you're only 37. I go, ah, I don't know. I don't have any ideas, right? So it's, it's self-induced pressure. It's my own fault. But 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 I had I needed to get away from that. And so so I got we landed in France. And and although there's no people asking you anything, guess what? That pressure doesn't go away because it's self-induced, right? And I would literally walk the streets of Aix-en-Provence at two and three in the morning with wrestling with that idea. Um, and so just, I'll give you a couple of points in the transition curve here. If you're drawing a graph, you know, you see it going down and then gradually coming up. But the, the, the down points were wandering the streets. And then um, one of the, the turning points for me uh, was when one of my college pro vice presidents, Steve Lawrence from Western Canada, came to visit me with his wife in March. Hmm. Just out of the blue, well, he called me up and he came over the blue. And, and it was, it, this may seem silly, but for me, all my P for purposes have been I was the head of college pro. I owned it. I was a CEO. This guy reported to me. Why would he want to come and see me when I don't have any power anymore? <laughs> because he actually liked me, right? And it was a nice, nice feeling. So his visit was a bit of a turning point. I realized that I was valuable without owning College Pro. We had great chats and, and learned, you know, things together. And then from there, it was it was easier to let the, you know the, the whole year the theme of that year was to let the past seep away, gradually the red wine and sun of Exxon Bros to steep in, and then gradually be able to face the future. So March was a bit of a turning point, and but around about April, May, as we're getting ready to leave Aix-en-Provence, I said, okay, time to start thinking about the future. And you know me, I'm a planner. So I went to the store and I got a big pad of paper, uh, you know, big that big computer paper, spread it out and said, okay, put the top, all right, goal. What do I want to do when I get back? Ah, what do I want to do when I get back? Ah, <laughs> I, I, I couldn't do it. But it had enough red wine and sun living by that time to go, okay, now is not the time. Let it go. And I didn't, and I put that that piece of big piece of paper away. And I and I and then we spent the rest of the, the summer traveling around Europe and then came home on the QE2 in August. And then I said, okay, now I'm ready to to face it again. Okay, so you come back from France, and I expect you'd have no end of choices. How did you decide what to do next? Right. So, so like all these things, it's, it's, it's never necessarily linear. I, I, I did take out the piece of paper and I, and I, uh, you know, I, I put down what my goals were and what the options were. And on the you know, far left, let's say was, you know, it's same old, not same old thing, but was starting another business. And there's all kinds of ideas that had, it was in France and the far right was going to work for somebody else. Um, and neither option really particularly attracted me on the, on the far left. I mean, how could I duplicate college pro? It was a rocket ride to success. I'd be comparing everything to my first love and it, I just didn't think that would work. Yeah. And, and on the far right, I, I did actually, you know, apply to a few jobs and look at a few things. Um, but it just didn't feel right. And, I, and so I couldn't do that. So what I landed on was, well, I, and I, I you just keep sticking your toe in the water. I, I would attend conferences and meetings and stuff. And I attended the venture capital conference in the fall in Calgary and then one in Boston. And I fell in love. I went, Ooh, this is pretty neat. These are really neat people. And it's, uh, instead of being involved with one company, you're involved in several. And I had this mistaken idea that I could take all the things I learned from college pro and apply them to other businesses. Um, so I started, to, so that was, I landed on that. And then over the period of the next year, 
1992, I would launch the Horatio Enterprise Fund with uh, with uh, about 15 other high net worth individuals who, you know, all through, you know, anywhere between 250 to a million dollars in the pot. And um, and then went out and 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 started to make uh, venture capital investments. Right. So you're not the first entrepreneur with, as you put it, the mistaken idea you could apply everything you learned from your operating business to investing in private equity. I think it's a, a really hard thing to take off your owner operator hat and put on this investor board member hat. Uh, you, you know, you're going from being in the driver's seat to being in the sidecar. And I think it's truly underestimated. You know, there's such different jobs and different roles, different skill sets, different perspectives. How did you make that transition? Well, I think reflecting back, I didn't make it very well um, because exactly the transition you talked about was that because I'm an entrepreneur and an operator, every business I looked at, I would say, I mean, this is looking back with hindsight, I would say, oh, I could fix that. You know, you know that, that, that's doable. I could, I could fix that. We could make that work. But it wasn't supposed to be me doing it. So, so that probably led me to interfere with the entrepreneur too much on the one hand. And the second thing, you, you make investments that you probably shouldn't make and or worse, you, you um, probably pay too much for them uh, because you, you know, you've, you've exaggerated what you think the percentage chances of, the, of that hockey stick forecast that the entrepreneur always gives you will come true. Right. So uh, when we're doing our little denouement thing, when we, when we closed down the venture capital fund, at, you know, at, at uh, 2006, uh, you know, we did okay in the end, but nowhere near, nowhere near what I had hoped we could do. Um, I remember one of my partners, you know, who was just a lovely, lovely, uh, experienced venture capitalist. He said, you know, the problem, Greg, with the, with the, the limited partners group, that, sorry, the general partners group that we put together, four or five individuals, was we didn't have any assholes on our board. Because in, in his previous venture capital, he always had at least one asshole slash, you know, hard ass person who would really ask the you know, really tough, not just ask the tough questions, John Tepper, maybe we did that, but would drive a hard deal and say, and say, listen, you know, the company's just not worth that much. Um, we're only going to pay this and or here are our terms. Whereas I was always sort of empathizing with the entrepreneur and going, oh, you know, treat other people like to be treated yourself, that kind of stuff. So I think that was part of our, and that's a, that's a design flaw, right? In terms of the design of the fund. The other challenge for us is I, when I when I did my analysis of the marketplace, I saw lots of people at all these conferences dealing in the you know the later stages and the mid stages. Nobody was very few were in early stage and startup. And I thought, oh well, this is a this is a, a zone that you know it's classic strategic theory. There's nobody playing in this sandbox. Let's go there. Well, nobody plays in that sandbox for a reason. <laughs> it's funny you mentioned that, Greg. It reminds me of something a friend of mine told me. He's a he's a corporate director who often gets brought in on difficult corporate situations. And he said, I always want at least two assholes on my board. Fortunately, I'm one of them. So I guess you're right. It is that personality type. But I'm wondering, you know, you were used to such success. And here you were experiencing something new. How were you feeling about some of those VC challenges? So, so as I started to take on the venture capital investments, when I finally realized that's what I wanted to do, uh, there were a couple of emotions that went through me. The, the nice, it's probably the combination of things you always do. You something new is excitement because it's new and each new business plan comes, you're really excited about it. But then you realize that there's a huge failure rate in this, in this industry. Most businesses don't succeed, maybe 10% do. So I'm, the other side of me is a huge pile of anxiety. You know, I, I, I would, 
I hate to say it, but I think the thing that drove me off into success was fear of failure more than more than desire to succeed because I just did, didn't want to fail. So I put in the the, the work hours. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was I was very much you know, afraid that I wouldn't succeed at this. So so there were the, both those two emotions going through going through my my veins. Excitement is something new and meeting new people and working in a whole new field. I just love learning. But then a great anxiety. You're absolutely right. Just because you're a good hockey player doesn't make you a good hockey coach. And we all all see all kinds of hockey coaches who have flamed out as as coaches or general managers and uh, and get fired. I didn't want to get fired. (laughs) Greg wasn't the only one who felt the magnitude of his change from college pro CEO to VC investor. His four children had only ever seen him constantly on the go for business. Greg had often taken them into the office or on business trips so they could spend time together. And then that all stopped. He shared a touching anecdote of how the change was seen through the eyes of his young son, Brennan. I'm an early bird, so I'd be up early in the morning working. And quite often, um, Brennan would leave his bedroom and come and he, he always liked confined spaces. So he'd sleep in my doorway. He'd bring his blanket and sleep in my doorway. And it was, it was you know, kind of cute. And um, so I'd work away and just look at him sleeping there. And then in those days, we had the plain paper faxes with the, on the rolls. And, and, and one day my fax went off while he was sleeping. And, you know, it makes that noise bzz, 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 as each paper is each. It, it was not single paper. It was just this long roll. And it started spitting out and it rolled out. And it must have been like a 25-page business plan. It spit out on my, on my carpet. And the noise woke Brennan up. And he looked at this long piece of paper coming out. And he said, Dad, Dad, look. Somebody likes you again. <laughs> right. I guess to an entrepreneur, nothing says I love you like a buzzing fax machine. What I don't know what the equivalent is today. It may be number of followers. But um, but I'm curious, Greg, when you started up Horatio, how did you decide how much capital to allocate to your VC business and how much to put aside for you for your long-term financial security? Yeah, good question. It's, it's just you got to put it in different buckets. I wanted to put enough into into uh, Horatio that it's it sent the message that you know I'm going to eat my own cooking here, and that you know I've got a lot of skin in the game, and yet leave enough. And I would say it's maybe I forget roughly. I think it's one third, two thirds. One third went into Horatio, and and uh, two thirds of the of the discretionary capital went into went with a money a money manager. So you put some money into your VC business, and then the bulk of it went to long term investing. But how much did the windfall change your lifestyle? Did you go out and buy some new toys, new homes? I didn't. I didn't uh, buy anything new. Maybe it's naturally my natural conservative nature. But as as we've talked, you know, I went through that transition of um, the few months after the sale, which I really hunkered down, didn't didn't do anything. I was trying to figure out what I do do next, and the the. Um, uh, Big big moment that we that I talked about was when I went out for lunch with my ex boss and and he was in the mergers and acquisition business and he had um, he, he had businesses for sale and I, I'm 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 like this eager guy across the table tell me what this one tell me what that one oh you got Coleman for sale I know about camping I, I'm interested in that one he he literally reached across the table put his hand on my shoulder and said slow down there kid. Um, uh, you're not you're not in the frame of mind to buy anything right now. You're too you're too eager. Wow. He said, oh, you know, I, you always talked about going to England or France. Why don't you just why don't you do, why don't you do that? Take a year, go to England for a year, and just be. Don't do. So so that became the focus of my spending. Was no point in buying any new toys and stuff. This is going to be a major thing to go and live in France for a year. 
That'll take money. Yeah. That'll take time. So, and that was a year to chill and sort of let this thing, you know, seep out of my veins and, um, and something new to come in. Yeah. Um, what about friendships and, and relationships with family members? I mean, I can imagine at 37, you were pretty unique in having this very large pool of capital when I expect most of your peers were working pretty hard to pay the mortgage. Did it impact the dynamic in your friendships or relationships with your family members? It's an interesting question, and, and as I reflect on it, it, it did not. And I think it's because, part, well, I didn't change my lifestyle, mm. and, I, and I didn't change my friends, and they didn't change me, thank goodness. Um, and so everything stayed the same. You know, for, my, for, my, for, for a lot of my entertainment, I continued to, I played hockey with the same group of guys. I, when I went camping and canoeing, it was the same group of guys, and camping and canoeing you know, not an exotic, uh, exotic vacation. So kind of kind of stayed stayed the same and it's 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 kind of neat as you, you mentioned the age because i think about it that's when a lot of nhl hockey players retire you know the 37 mm -hmm. 38 and, and their whole life has you know they've got to go on to something else but they got to whack a money and it's interesting to see some of them handle it very well some of them not so well and and a lot of it goes back to their grounding probably from the values they got from their parents you know and what what, what matters in life yeah and the people around them where they're being steered who's advising them that can have a huge impact as well. But so when you go out for drinks with guys, they don't think, oh, well, Greg will pick up the tab. He's got lots of money that, you know, that kind of stuff didn't happen. No, that didn't. <laughs> maybe that, maybe that's what some of those long pauses were. I'd <laughs> the the like to think I have high emotional intelligence, but I didn't pick up on that. <laughs> Today, Greg, along with his wife, Carolyn, is most passionate about philanthropy which he says is the most rewarding and meaningful work he's done in his life. Among his pursuits, he's chair of Trails Youth Initiatives, a not-for-profit organization whose mission is to challenge, equip, and empower at-risk youth to become contributing members of society. He says this work has also helped him grow into the board member he always wanted to be. If I had a sort of a camera in myself, but how I, when I was sort of the, head person at College Pro and the head person and, and not the head person, Mel runs it, but as the chair at Trails, there's just a, a, a world of difference in that um, I think I have actually learned how to become a chairman and advisor, which I hadn't learned in my venture capital days. And it's just a heck of a lot more listening, asking questions, sussing out where they want to go, what makes sense. Um, I, I'm, I'm still pretty excitable and emotional and <laughs> get into it, as you know, but but I, I, I think I've learned to, to, uh, to temper that a little bit. So Greg, you became chair of trails when the founder, Jim Hayhurst passed away. Uh, he was another great entrepreneur. I know he was a wonderful friend and mentor to you. And I think he handpicked you to be his successor. Now, I didn't know Jim Hayhurst, but I certainly in the work I've done with trails have come to understand him as a legend. And it strikes me, he was one of the first venture philanthropists and, you know, it probably wasn't the term that was used 30 years ago when he started Trails, but just this concept of applying innovation and applying his entrepreneurial know-how with this mission to drive social change. Do you think there's something unique that entrepreneurs like Hayhurst and yourself have something to offer the social sector? Well, I, I'm biased, but yes, I think we do. <laughs> um, and a couple of things. One Probably the biggest one is, you know, I've, as, you, as you know, I adore Hearst and he is one of my mentors in life. And one of the things I loved hearing from him is the story of how he started it. And to me, it's the, it's the classic 
is well that's how i started college pro it's a classic entrepreneurial mentality is you see is you know that symbol that apparently the, the chinese symbol for crisis is 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 one part problem the other part opportunity and i always i always love that because that to me is in the dna of an entrepreneur they see a problem but they almost instantly see oh opportunity how can we fix that how can we do something with that and for hearst it was um and i won't take you through the whole thing but uh, but it's a really neat story but he had he, he had through various things working in harlem and stuff he'd, he'd wanted to help inner city kids and he came back to canada to see if there are any programs like that and he and he found there were lots of like one week camps and two week camps and things like that and all the uh professionals he talked to said you know that he said wouldn't it be better if they had you know if it took a long over you know a long period of time like four years and really helped to transform kids and they said oh yeah they said for sure but nobody will fund that so that's like a red flag <laughs> to a bull to her street. Oh, right. wow, we'll, we'll find somebody to fund that. And he found Sears. And obviously, as you know, he probably sold himself. The program, yes, but he sold himself, put his ass on the line to say, we'll deliver these results. And that's how it got started. So that's the, that's the you know, the problem opportunity thing. And in a, as a sidebar, that is innovate. You know, if it doesn't work, try something else. If it doesn't work, try something else. And just one other quick thing on the on the problem opportunity, it, it carried on his son Jim Jim Jr., who was the who was his co-founder really, and then after he died, of course, you know, Hearst died in February of 2020, and in March we had this minor little thing called the pandemic, <laughs> and I've been in the chair seat for a month, and uh, I'm talking with Mel, the president, and uh, and uh, what are we going to do? And we brought Jimmy into the conversation, and he brought this neat philosophy, which is what what's the gift? <laughs> How's this for a line? What's the gift of COVID? Mm. What will it allow us to do that we couldn't otherwise do? And it was a real flip. And it was just like his dad. And we, and we did work on that and, and, and do some good things out of it, which we, we can talk about if you want. But the, the neat thing was that mental flip to say, what can we make good out of this? That is such a good uh, aphorism for life, you know, to take the things that happen to us in life and say, how do I use this for good for myself or for others? Um, more broadly, beyond trails, I know that very broadly, you and Carolyn are terrific supporters of charities, something I've always admired about you. And we've talked before about the challenge of trying to narrow your focus so you can really have an impact. And I wonder how you two think about which organizations to support. And those were pretty careful. I know, I know you are too, is we pick ones which lines up exactly with where we want to make the difference. And our overall heading is to try to level the playing field, um, you know, to try to help people who have had barriers because we didn't. Uh, how can we help lower it for other people? We believe that's in the best interest, not only of the individual, but society, because if each individual can reach their own potential. That increases the pie for the whole society. So, so the, so, um, and, and we believe that one of the best ways to do that is through education. So, uh, one of our big charities, obviously, is Trails because we're, we're both very involved. Another one, though, we're not involved, but I've, I've heard you know good things about it is Inspire because they give um, they give uh, uh, bursaries to indigenous um, children, and we focused on the on the ones in the Arctic because that's where our daughter Daron works. So that's our that's our strategy. As I listen to you, I'm I'm curious about how you came to charitable giving and community service. Was it something you grew up with? Yes, my mom was pretty pretty big into that. My my dad was too, but my mom obviously more with her time. Funny funny story there. When my dad died and I had to do his final tax return, you know, I, I get the proverbial Manila file folder filled with 
all kinds of stuff and receipts and all that stuff. And it was a mineral file folder of terrible receipts. I went, wow, this is a pile. So I laid them all out on the floor and, and, and documented them all and added them all up. And it came to 10% of his income. And I went, wow, I didn't know he did that. So yeah, it was pretty deep in my parents' DNA and uh, particularly my mother in getting involved in different causes. She got involved in a lot of issues with the indigenous people in Thunder Bay where we were there. And um, boy, I wish I'd, I wish she was here now so I could talk to her more about her understanding of the root causes of some of those issues. How has your philanthropic work changed the lens through which you see the world or, or has it? It totally changes how you view the world. It starts to change what you read, who you talk to. Yesterday, I got to go up the trails and the first time in 18 months, saw some kids there and uh, couldn't hug them, but could say hi. And it was just friggin' glorious. I mean, I just loved it. Um, and as I was leaving, um, you know, this, this fellow came up to me and said, oh, hi, I just wanted to say hi. And we shook hands. And when he told me his name, I knew instantly who he was because we talked about him. And, uh, and he, it was just, you could just see in his, he had the loveliest smile and you could just see in his eyes. And he was just so genuine and so gentle in how he was talking. But I knew from his, his story that he had been through, he was an alumni of Trails. He'd been through the program then fallen on really hard times, really hard times, um, you know, difficulties with all kinds of, all kinds of issues. And uh, instantly the person who he reached out to had, had put him in touch with Mel, our president, Mel had gotten in touch with him, had immediately reached out to help him out on a number of different fronts. And uh, he wanted to, uh, he was there that day because he had a broom in his, and a mop in his hands, he was cleaning the floor. I looked at him and said, you know, what, what brings you here today? He says, well, Greg, <coughs> pardon me. I felt the need to give back and I went, wow, right? And you just see in his, in his eyes, you know, what the, what this organization trails has meant to him, transformed his life, probably, probably not exaggerating, saved his life. And you go, wow, this is just so satisfying to do this work. You know, Greg, I'm listening to you and I'm thinking, as I know you today, and we've been friends for over a decade, I didn't know you when you were running College Pro. And so I can't help but wonder how different is Greg Clark today from the Greg Clark that was running College Pro? Wow. <laughs> well, I th there's, uh, it's been a slow evolution, I'd like to think. Um, and I think I'll just, I'll just back up a little bit because I think one of the things that's helped me do that evolution has been something that we've talked about, which was way back when, you know, in 1985, got given a book by one of my college pro managers, Jim Murphy, gave me a book, Stephen Covey's The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And I read it and loved it and applied lots of things to college pro. But one of the things he said in there was write your own mission statement. And, you know, partly, you know, he talks about imagining your own obituary, your own funeral, which is a, that's a, <laughs> that's a pretty big thing to do when you're 30 years old. But, but it was, uh, it was, so I did take a first crack at a mission statement then. And, and, and uh, you know, 36 years later, I'm still doing it. So I've got, I'm version 36. But what it becomes for you is, uh, it becomes like your, your, it's a one page of a piece of paper, the mission at the top and the other things like values and, and, uh, and focus areas go below that. I sort of revise it every year. It's the joy of a word processor. But the, it, 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 it helped, it, it, 
it helps you to guide both each year, but I sort of use it every day and say, what am I doing today to advance towards that, that mission? So how, how does that make the change between me now and then is I think it's, it's taken 36 years for all that to keep seeping in and to pay attention to more of the things that are mission driven than not. Um, and, Cause I'll, I'll bet that way back, uh, you know, way back then, I just was not as, as, as thoughtful and as, as it was, I was a young man in a hurry. And I think that's just, I think that's maybe that's part of the natural aging process. You just slow down and consider things a little more because, you know, my dad used to say haste makes waste. And I would do things real fast in college pro days because I was into efficiency and, you know, multitasking and all that kind of stuff. And you make a lot of terrible mistakes. And then you realize it takes you more time to clean up the mistakes. And if you just taken time to do it right in the first place. So What's out of their line my dad used to do? Measure twice, cut once, right? So I, I think I think the biggest change would be me more thoughtful, more considerate, maybe. I have to ask my wife. <laughs> well, as your friend, I certainly know you as someone who's thoughtful and intentional in your approach to life. And you've mentioned purpose. So I'm curious, and maybe this is an impertinent question, but I'll ask you anyway. Do you ever think about the purpose of your wealth? Yes. Well, I, th I would think that had to be a subset of my purpose of my life because the wealth is just a byproduct of that. And if the purpose of my life, which goes back to my mission, is to use all the resources I've been given by God and that I've added to by my own efforts to uh, help uh, as many humans as possible reach their own human, full human potential, starting with myself, physician, heal thyself, starting with myself and my family, starting close to home, but then also with some of the organizations I work with, but particularly with an organization like Trails, where you there's a lot of chance to help people to help level the playing field. So, so, so one of the, the only two resources you've really got in life are your time and your money. So I take, uh, and so that allocates, uh, as I said, every day I look at how am I using my time to live that mission, and then and then you know, Kale and I sit down and how are we using our money to fulfill that mission. And it's the same buckets as you talked about before. There has to be a certain allocation of, of that money for, you know, for however long we think we're going to live um, and at what lifestyle we need to attain. And then there's another bucket, which is the giving back bucket. Before, it was the allocation of money to venture capital. This Now it's the allocation of money to philanthropy. Well, thanks for sharing that, Greg, because I wouldn't ask everyone that question because I don't think everybody thinks about the purpose of their wealth, but I'm always interested and how people think about money. And on that note, a couple of final rapid fire questions for you on wealth. Which is easiest for you, saving, spending, or giving money away? Oh, great question. Saving, I find spending ridiculously hard. I agonize, <laughs> I agonize, I agonize over, you know, I go to a, a you know, a, a restaurant, which, which meal to pick, you know, um, Savings comes naturally. My 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 father was a depression era kid, and boy, savings was very important in our family. But I, I think lately, giving money away has become the easiest because it's just so satisfying. It's very clear as you as you enter the later stages of your life, you're never going to be able to spend it all. Uh, you don't want to leave it to the government, and you want your kids to be able to get by on their own. So you don't want to leave a ton there, but so you you, you can give it away, and and um, one of the great lines um, uh, that I've, I've, I've read in philanthropy lately is, 
you know, why leave stuff in, you know, in your will to give it away and you're dead? Why don't you give it away you're living and you can see some of the impact of it? Mm-hmm. And Carolyn and I have taken that very much to heart. <laughs> okay, next question. What did you learn when you came into wealth that you didn't know before? How it grows. That was, you can read about it in books and stuff, but that power of compound interest. You know, I've made way more money on the investment of my money than I ever made from College Pro. And you, you look at that and you go, wow, like if you invest with the right people and if you get a good money manager and they manage it well, boy, it, it that that thing grows. And so that's a, a good thing. It also makes me realize but the, the problems with inequality that th- those families that have money, they're going to continue to get more and uh, and it'll grow way faster than inflation. So that gap's going to continue to get worse. So it's the power of the power of compound interest and how it really can grow was one of the things that I maybe read about, but that you don't know until you watch your, 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 uh, you know, watch those monthly reports and you see those numbers ticking up every month. Okay. Last question, fill in the blank. To me, money is. Money is, I always just say money is a scorecard. Um, I remember because somebody asked me that when I first made money at College Pro, because because at College Pro you you start off the year make up the numbers a million bucks in the hole and you end up the year a million bucks ahead, right? So you, the scorecard's got to work because if you don't have that million bucks at the end, you can't you can't finance the, the next year. So it's it's a it's a it's a scorecard. Um, uh, capitalism is relentless. If you if you go out and do something that you love, but at the end of the day you don't make a profit on it, you can't continue to do it. So you have to have that scorecard. But if you don't enjoy what you're doing, if I didn't love the day to day of college pro, the scorecard would have been meaningless. So to me, originally I would answer that question, money is a scorecard. But as I got a little bit older and and lived a few more things, I realized that money is also an enabler. Um, it enables you to do things like we talked about, uh, you know, some of those luxuries in life, like unduplicatable experiences, or on the other side, helping others. Thanks for listening to Serious Coin. I'm Kelly Willis Green. I want to thank my guest, Greg Clark. And if you'd like more information about the great work that Greg and the team at Trails Youth Initiatives are doing to drive social change, you can visit their website at trails.ca. This show was produced by Lead Podcasting. Special thanks to my producer, Amanda Capito, and Bob Ramsey of Ramsey Writes for consulting on this episode. If you enjoyed this conversation, subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. Series Coin Podcast is provided for your general interest only, and nothing we discuss should be taken as investment, tax, legal, or other professional advice. Always talk to a licensed professional before you take any financial decisions.